Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Cleared for Takeoff. I'm your host, Gavin Rice, and I want to share what I've learned in aviation, both on the job, off the job, and what I've encountered everywhere in between. This past week, some interesting things happened in the airline world, in terms of news. So I, I thought I'd make this episode kind of like a, a newscast and, and uh, add in a couple of my own opinions. Hopefully adding my own information can, can help offset some mainstream media's inaccuracies regarding aviation events. Uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty funny reading some articles about the airlines and, and how, uh, for one example, uh, a simple go-around is written as this crazy occurrence uh, and is made newsworthy. Uh, but anyway, I digress. What definitely was newsworthy this week, uh, as per the title of this episode, was an aircraft tipping event and a major security threat. Both events happened this past Sunday, October the 22nd. And to, to start things off, let's talk about the tipping event. So on, on Sunday evening at New York's Kennedy Airport in Terminal 5, there was a JetBlue aircraft that tipped onto its tail while it was at its gate. And you might be asking, how is that even possible? Well, it comes down to one simple thing, weight and balance, specifically balance in this situation. So when the aircraft arrived at its gate, crew members began the, the deplaning process. Just like any other flight, the second that seatbelt sign was turned off, everyone jumped up to grab all their belongings and started lining up to, to exit the aircraft. And this specific aircraft was a, uh, an Airbus A321, which is uh, quite a bit longer. It's got a longer fuselage than compared to the Airbus A320 and the, and the 319. Uh, and so th there's more length, uh, quite a bit more length, behind the main landing gear in order to accommodate more seating. This is also somewhat, uh, actually very similar to the, the Boeing 737 when you compare the, even the 800 model to the, to the Dash 900 model. Uh, there's just a, a good deal more of metal behind the main landing gear than, than its predecessors. Uh, and in, in fact, this, this tipping phenomenon has, has also happened on the 737-900s as well. So how does this happen? Well, like I said, people lined up to exit the aircraft, and as they deplaned, the aircraft overall became lighter. But because of one important out-of-order sequence, the balance shifted more aft than it could handle for balancing. This particular flight was fully loaded with bags and crew members on the ground, the grounds crew began unloading bags from the forward baggage compartment before emptying the aft baggage compartment. Keep in mind the, the aft baggage compartment is behind the, man, the main landing gear, uh, therefore behind that balance point. And when you think about it, while on the ramp, an airliner is essentially just a giant teeter-totter with the exception that it can only tip one way due to the, the three-legged design. You know, you have the nose wheel up front, is the one wheel, uh, and then the mains having the two wheels. So there, there's no way that it could tip forward, but it could tip back. And again, since the aft baggage compartment is, is all aft of the main landing gear versus the forward baggage compartment is mostly forward of the main landing gear, if you don't unload those in the proper sequence, we can have a, a tipping phenomenon. So once bags were unloaded from the front compartment, and the passengers deplaned, there was enough shift in balance so that the area aft of the main landing gear became heavier, thus causing the tail to drop down and the nose to lift up into the air. And, and from all the accounts of this incident uh, you know, that I was reading, that I heard about, I, I didn't hear of anyone getting injured, so that's really good. 
but it was quite a big oops. And interestingly enough, I, I know the, the 737-900, uh, to help prevent this from happening, has a, a little kickstand sort of device that drops down from the tail, uh, which, you know, in the, in the event that the, the baggage was unloaded improperly, like what uh, I aforementioned, you'd have this little monopod-looking kickstand thing that would prevent the tail from tipping because that would be uh, the, the weight would press down on that, on that kickstand instead of allowing the tail to tip down. And I, I don't think the A321 has this device, but, but don't quote me on that. Maybe it does that I'm unaware of. Uh, but nonetheless, it was, it was an honest mistake due to the improper removal of luggage from the aircraft. And I'm, I'm sure safety initiatives have been put into place to help prevent this sort of incident from happening again. And whether that's uh, maybe it was individual training for the, the, those ground crew members who were uh, at fault, or maybe it's a, a total revamp of procedures or, or training protocols regarding, uh, you know, their different operations on the ground. And, and hopefully, you know, this won't happen again. Uh, and, and like I said, from what I heard, no one was injured, thankfully. But, I mean, imagine if someone did get hurt. If someone was underneath the tail when that came down, not a good way to end your day. Uh, so luckily, again, uh, from what I've heard, there were no injuries. Although I, I will say... The aircraft obviously sustained some damage uh, because of that tipping. The extent of the damage I'm, I'm unaware of, but I'm sure maintenance had to be involved. And they they, uh, they most likely brought the aircraft out of service. And when you bring an aircraft out of service, that will vastly affect the revenue, uh, overall revenue, and, and then flight schedules as well. Because now you, you're taking one more aircraft out of out of the mix. And, and JetBlue is known to have a lot of routes while operating a, a thin line of aircraft, meaning that there's just, there's not too many backups. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of wiggle room to take an aircraft out of service when it was not planned to be out of service. So hopefully that, that aircraft gets back to flying the line soon so that uh, operations can, can keep moving forward and, and limit any delays or cancellations. In other news, on a more serious note, a much more serious note, there was a major security threat to a Horizon aircraft, and Horizon is a wholly owned subsidiary of Alaska Airlines and operates uh, regional routes. Uh, and this, this event also occurred this past Sunday, and it was a, uh, an Embraer operating from Snohomish County Airport in Everett, Washington, and was scheduled to fly to San Francisco, California. It was a, a completely full flight, so there were no empty seats in the back. There was a, a commuting pilot who was who was headed for San Francisco, and he was uh, granted cockpit uh, the cockpit jump seat. And and this is a really awesome privilege that airline pilots have. It's it's the ability to commute to and from work, and take an extra seat if necessary if there's not an extra one in the back. And while it's it's not comfortable by any means, it it is a seat nonetheless, and it it gets you where you need to go. And, and I've ridden up in the jump seat quite a few times, and it's it's also really fun to to watch another crew at work, and just get the best view on the aircraft, the best seat in the house. Uh, and this this privilege is is thanks to a system called CASS, which uh, C A S S. It stands for Cockpit Access Security System, and CASS allows almost any airline pilot from one airline to ride on the jump seat of almost any other airline. And, and the reason I say almost is because some airlines don't have agreements between each other to, to allow everyone else to ride up front. Uh, but for the most part, airlines do have agreements with each other. And this privilege is also determined by the captain of the flight. There's a, a sort of courtesy protocol in place that uh, reminds everyone that, that jump seating is a privilege and it's, it's not a right. And, and this is as it should be. I mean, after all, you get to ride up front for free. 
and, and be up close and personal to the flight crew. So it's it's the captain's final authority to allow a jump seater or not. And and there's there's common courtesy rules where you you show up dressed in uh, at least business casual. Uh, you're cleanly shaven, and, and then you have to ask the the uh, captain permission to ride in the jump seat. And if granted, the the jump seater must adhere to the policies and procedures set forth by that airline and the instructions given by the crew, and also follow a really important thing called the sterile cockpit rule. Uh, and this means that at all times below 10,000 feet, when the aircraft is off the gate, you know your cell phone's off. Um, you know, you're not distracting, causing any kind of distractions and, and conversation is only related to the operation. Um, and, and only if the, the operating crew requests your assistance or, or addresses you. And as a jump seater, you're not flying. So you, you don't want to get in the way of that operating flight crew. And even when you're above 10,000 feet out of the sterile cockpit environment, it's, it's still really important to be respectful and, and keep your hands off of any buttons or controls, regardless of the altitude unless specifically instructed uh, to, to do something by the operating crew. And I mentioned keeping one's hands off of buttons or controls. And this is because this past Sunday on October 22nd, the jump seater did not adhere to common sense, let alone jump seat rules, and pulled a couple levers that he was most certainly not supposed to. Uh, there's an, an affidavit in support of a, a criminal complaint and an arrest warrant. And there's a, an FBI agent assigned to the case that uh, recounts the series of events that led to this Horizon Air Flight uh, 2059 to divert to Portland, Oregon, due to the jump seater intervening with cockpit controls. Uh, and this, this affidavit can be found online easily if you Google it, uh, because it is public information at this point. But I figured I, I could read it to you, uh, and because it's, it's quite scary, and I think this is the best way to... to uh, recount this this event um, to, to help bring some real good factual information because there's a lot of articles out there that um, eh, may get some of the facts wrong if I just read off of some regular news story or something. So um, I'm going to read this affidavit and then when I'm done reading I'll, I'll add some of my own thoughts to, to kind of wrap things up. So again this is an affidavit which is um, an affidavit in support of a criminal complaint and arrest warrant. Essentially a, a a brief summary, I say brief, it'll, it'll take me a few minutes to read through this, uh, but as a summary of, of um, everything that went on and, and what will lead to uh, a thorough investigation and, and a warrant for uh, the arrest of the jump seater. So this is uh, the District of Oregon uh, Affidavit of Tapra Sammons Jr. Um, I, Tapra Simmons Jr., being duly sworn, do hereby depose and state as follows. Uh, so this is the, the first section here is the introduction and agent background. So I am a special agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which is the FBI, and have been since February of 2023. I'm currently assigned to the FBI Portland Field Office, Violent Crimes Against Children and Violent Incident Crime Domestic, where I investigate violations of federal law, including but not limited to bank robberies, crimes against children, and other violent crimes. As a special agent with the FBI, I received extensive training in law enforcement techniques and in conducting these types of investigations. I am trained in investigating a wide variety of violations of federal criminal law, having received over 800 hours of training at the FBI Academy. As a federal agent, I am authorized to investigate violations of laws in the United States, and as a law enforcement officer, I am authorized to execute warrants issued under the authority of the United States. Prior to joining the FBI since March of 2019, I was sworn a uh, federal law enforcement officer of the United States Secret Service in Washington, D.C. 
This affidavit is submitted in support of a criminal complaint and arrest warrant charging Joseph David Emerson with interference with flight crew members and attendants in violation of 49 U.S.C. 46504. As set forth below, I have probable cause to believe that Emerson committed that crime. This affidavit is intended to show only that there is sufficient probable cause for the requested complaint and arrest warrant does not set forth all my knowledge about this matter. The facts set forth in this affidavit are based on my own personal knowledge, knowledge obtained from other individuals during my participation in this investigation, including other law enforcement officers, interviews of witnesses, a review of records related to the investigation, communications with others who have knowledge of the events and circumstances described herein, and information gained through my training and experience. And so the next paragraph here is the applicable law. Title 49 USC 46504 provides that an individual on an aircraft in the special aircraft jurisdiction of the United States who, by assaulting or intimidating a flight crew member or flight attendant of an aircraft, interferes with the performance of the duties of the member or attendant to perform those duties, or attempts or conspires to do such an act shall be fined under Title 18, imprisonment for not more than 20 years or both. Special aircraft jurisdiction requires that the offense occur while the aircraft is in flight, as defined in 49 U.S.C. 46501, subparagraph 1. And here's the, uh, the next paragraph, is the, the statement of the probable cause. On Sunday, October 22nd, 2023, at approximately 6.11 p.m., Port of Portland Police officers responded to a report of an inbound aircraft, Horizon Airlines Flight Number 2059, tail number N660QX, flying to Portland International Airport due to an in-flight disturbance. The initial reporting from police dispatch was that of off-duty pilot named Joseph David Emerson, hereafter referred to as Emerson, sitting in the cockpit jump seat of the aircraft, attempted to shut the engines down during flight. Responding police units interviewed the two pilots. Pilot 1 was flying the aircraft and said that prior to this evening, he had never met Emerson. During the initial stages of the flight, Pilot 1 said there was zero indication of anything wrong, and Emerson engaged both pilots in casual conversation about types of aircraft. Pilot 1 advised that the incident occurred approximately halfway between Astoria, Oregon and Portland, Oregon, while the aircraft headed south. While sitting in the cockpit jump seat, Emerson said, quote, I am not okay. Pilot 2 turned and observed Emerson reaching up and grabbing the red fire handles and pulling them down. Pilot 1 explained to the interviewing police officer that by pulling the red fire handles, this effectively activated the aircraft fire suppression system used to extinguish aircraft engine fires. Pilot 1 added that the activation of the fire suppression system would shut off the fuel supply to the engines. Pilot 1 grabbed Emerson's wrists while Pilot 2 declared an in-flight emergency. Pilot 1 said Emerson initially resisted him and they physically engaged for a duration he estimated to be between 25 and 30 seconds, and then Emerson quickly settled down. Pilot 1 asked Emerson to leave the cockpit and Emerson exited the cockpit. Pilot 1 estimated that from the time Emerson told the pilots he was not okay until Emerson exited the cockpit was approximately 90 seconds. Pilot 2 advised that at the beginning of the flight, Emerson engaged in casual conversation with them about the weather. Emerson told the pilots that he, Emerson, had been working for the airline for 10 years. 
Then, during the flight, Pilot 2 observed Emerson throw his headset across the cockpit and announce, quote, I am not okay. Pilot 2 observed Emerson grab both red shutoff handles. Pilot 2 advised that Emerson had to be wrestled with for several seconds before Emerson stopped what he was doing. Pilot 2 declared an in-flight emergency, turned the autopilot off, and changed the aircraft's course to fly to Portland. Once Emerson exited the cockpit, the pilot secured the cockpit door. Pilot 2 advised the interviewing police officer that Emerson was unable to pull the red handles down all the way and fully activate the engine shutoff uh, due to the pilot's wrestling with Emerson. If Emerson had successfully pulled the red engine shutoff handles down all the way, then it would have shut down the hydraulics and the fuel to the engines, turning the aircraft into a glider within seconds. Pilot 2 stated that Emerson's actions interfered with their ability to operate the aircraft. Responding officers interviewed several flight attendants. During the flight, the flight attendants received a call from the cockpit that Emerson was losing it and he needed to get out of the cockpit. Emerson was reserved peacefully walking to the back of the aircraft. Emerson told one flight attendant that he, quote, just got kicked out of the flight deck. Emerson said to the flight attendant, quote, you need to cuff me right now or it's going to be bad, end quote. The flight attendant sat Emerson in a flight attendant seat in the back of the aircraft and placed cuffs on Emerson's wrists. During the flight's descent, Emerson turned towards the, uh, one of the emergency exit doors and tried to grab the handle. A flight attendant stopped Emerson by placing her hands on top of Emerson's hands. The flight attendant engaged Emerson in conversation in an attempt to distract him from trying to grab the emergency exit handle again. Another flight attendant observed Emerson making statements such as, quote, I messed everything up and uh, that he tried to kill everybody, end quote. The flight attendant noticed Emerson take out his cellular phone and appeared to be texting on the phone. Emerson was heard saying that he had just put 84 people's lives at risk tonight, including his own. Responding police officers interviewed Emerson. The officer learned that Emerson was seated in a flight attendant seat in the back of the aircraft. Emerson had a pair of flex handcuffs around his hands in front, and he was also secured by a seat harness. Officers detained Emerson and placed him in a patrol vehicle. Officers read Emerson his Miranda rights, and Emerson agreed to speak with officers. Emerson's police interview was recorded. Emerson advised that he believed he was having a, quote, nervous breakdown and had not slept in 40 hours. Emerson said he was employee of Alaska Airlines and had been a pilot since 2001. Emerson said he felt dehydrated and tired. Emerson confirmed that he sat in the cockpit during the flight. Emerson said, I don't feel okay. It seemed like the pilots weren't paying attention to what was going on. They didn't, it didn't seem right. Emerson also said, yeah, I, I pulled both emergency shutoff handles because I thought I was dreaming and I just want to wake up. Emerson denied taking any medication, but he stated that approximately six months ago, he became depressed. The officer and Emerson talked about the use of psychedelic mushrooms, and Emerson said it was his first time taking mushrooms. Emerson was brought to the Port of Portland Police Department. While in custody and in front of officers, Emerson asked if he could waive his right to an attorney. He said, I'm admitting to what I did. I'm not fighting any charges you want to bring against me, guys. Police units inspected the cockpit. It was noted the proximity of the cockpit jump seat to the emergency shutoff handles. 
Officers noted that the handles were clearly painted red and had EXTG printed on them. Uh, this stands for extinguish, if that wasn't clear. Uh, and so the, the last little bit is the conclusion. Based on the foregoing, I submit there is probable cause to believe that Joseph David Emerson committed several violations of Title 49, United States Code, Section 46504, and requests issuance of a warrant. Prior to being submitted to the court, this affidavit, the accompanying complaint, and the arrest warrant were all reviewed by the Assistant United States Attorney, Lee Bolstad. Assistant uh, Attorney Bolstad advised me that, in her opinion, the affidavit is legally and factually sufficient to establish probable cause to support the issuance of the requested criminal complaint and arrest warrant. Wow. So there you have it. That is, that is a lot to, to soak in. I mean, the, the, the fact that we have locking cockpit doors for security reasons makes complete sense. I mean, there were many hijackings uh, many years ago that caused uh, a lot of planes to divert. And a common one was that uh, planes were commonly forced to, to land in Cuba. Uh, but then 9-11 happened and the, the locking cockpit door became a requirement. And after that, very few incidents ever occurred. Uh, to my knowledge, I don't think there's any um, any true hijackings, at least of a, an aircraft that was already loaded. There have been incidents of, of aircraft being stolen on the ground uh, and, and actually taken off as well. Uh, but nothing that I've heard of, of breaching the flight deck. Um, and, and so, you know, the only individuals that, that were uh, and, and still are as of the, the, the locking door rule, uh, the, the only ones access, uh, that are granted access to the flight deck are, are pilots. Uh, and never had I imagined that a jump-seating pilot could be a serious threat to the lives of everyone on board. And I, in a matter of seconds, things went from, you know, normal, a completely normal flight, to all of a sudden 84 people's lives were now at serious risk. I mean, it's, it's quite scary. And, and it's true. Not all of us get along perfectly. We might fly with people that we just don't like. Uh, but we have a we have a job to do. You know, we, we have to get people safely from one city to another. So, so you know, what, what, what do we do now? What, how do we proceed with, with an event like this? I've, I've never heard of anything like this happening. And this is where my, my personal opinion kind of comes into play. Um, I'm, I'm not sure there's anything else that can be done in terms of, of security measures while still allowing jump seat access. It's, it's an incredibly important privilege that we as pilots have, and, and it's something that I've used quite a few times, even without being a, a full-time commuter. You know, I've just commuted to a couple trips here and there, and a couple times when flights were full uh, and I wanted to, to relocate myself, you know, I was, I was able to grab that last seat, and it's, it's, an, it's a really nice privilege to have. Uh, and, and like I said, these flights are sometimes full. That's why I've had to go on them. And, and so imagine if you're a, a, a commuting pilot that, um, that has to get home or is trying to get to work, and, and if that privilege was taken away, I mean, that, that would greatly impact the quality of life on an already challenging career, uh, especially in terms of quality of life. So in my opinion, there's just no way uh, that we can do away with jump seating privileges. It's very important and it's worked for so long and it still does work. This is just a very interesting occurrence. And so what, what's the solution? Well, I, I think it's time for the, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, to recognize that pilots are human too. We all have struggles in life, and, and sometimes we need help. Uh, and depression is a, a serious issue, 
and, and you know, as as mentioned in this affidavit, it it appears that uh, this um, this jump seater Emerson had uh, admitted to being depressed six months ago. And you know that you know again, this affidavit, I, what I read to you is is pretty much all the information I have right now. There's a lot of stuff in the investigation that that is not going to be. Uh, public information for quite some time, but but what I've read to you right now is public information, and so it's you know it, it leaves us up to speculation in terms of whether or not Emerson was was depressed leading up to this. Um, it clearly something was going on, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't have done this, probably, right? So it's a serious issue, depression. Uh, there, there's there's many great resources for people to get help when when it comes to mental health, but not for pilots, and. The reason for that is, is because if, if any pilot were to disclose anything about uh, even even a history of depression from many years ago, I mean, boom, there goes your medical certificate or or any any hopes of getting a medical certificate. Even if you're you're aspiring to be a pilot and you have a recorded medical history of you know being on some medication for depression or something like that, the chances of becoming a pilot is very slim. Um, because you you can't get a medical certificate with a, a history of depression, so it's 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 sad in that regard that there's nothing in place that allows pilots or or future pilots to seek help or to be screened, you know, some some procedure to be screened as as okay to fly. Uh, and as as soon as anything relating to mental health comes up on your medical history, I mean, like like I said, there goes your flying career because you can't hold a medical certificate given that history. So this this individual, Emerson, clearly needed help. Uh, and, you know, maybe he needed time off from work to sort his personal life out. Uh, he he should have had resources avail- available to him, uh, and, and even if he needed to take some unpaid leave. You know, he, he should have a, a right to return to work once he's ready, once things get sorted out, and he has professional help, because uh, that's, that's so important. Now, I, I, I must add that this is in, this in no way gives any kind of justification for what he did. It's it's so wrong and terrifying. You you don't even joke around with something like that. It's it's common sense that you you don't press the big red button. You don't pull the red handle. You know, it's it's common sense. You know, for uh, an airline pilot who has probably quite a few thousand hours given that uh, in in the report it said he had been with uh, Alaska for 10 years, I think it said I'm sure he's got thousands of hours. It's, it's a no-brainer. It's common sense. You, you don't pull any handles. And even if you're on an aircraft you've never been on before, an airplane is an airplane is an airplane. You can look in a flight deck and pretty quickly figure out, oh, this aircraft has this here and this there. You know, some systems are located in different locations, but it's so obvious, you know, that you don't touch the red buttons <laughs> or handles. Uh, and so, you know, and, and what was given in this report that he clearly was was not right you know he said he literally said i am not okay and then went to grab the handles uh and and it's just ugh, thankful that um he didn't pull the handles down all the way uh and, and i i fly the Embraer as well so i'm, I'm familiar with the system uh, in training in our simulators we actually do um practice engine fires and you pull the handle down, and it kind of comes down into a 90-degree angle. So I'm assuming that he just didn't pull it all the way down to a 90-degree angle. But it's just, it's still scary to think that, yeah, if he had pulled that handle, what it does is it shuts off the fuel, like they said in the report, shuts off the hydraulics, uh, the, the um, I should say the, the engine-driven pump. Uh, it, it shuts off bleed air, 
and uh, it also shuts off the uh, electric, the, the drive generator. So you have multiple systems that are run by the engine that get completely disconnected. So now you're, like, like they said in the report, the aircraft becomes essentially a glider. You're going to be running off of uh, auxiliary power. And so it's, it's just, it's not something to toy around with. Uh, you know, pulling one handle is bad, but pulling both handles, that's just incredibly bad. Uh, so again, no justification for what he did. It, it, was, it was so wrong. And, you know, like he even admitted, uh, he, he did put 84 lives at stake. Uh, which is, it's terrifying. But it, it still goes to show that if he needed help, uh, he clearly didn't seek it because he probably knew that his career would be on the line. Um, and, and so, you know, he didn't have those resources that he could reach out and, and, and seek help because, you know, he, his medical would have been yanked. He wouldn't be able to fly anymore. And, and for uh, you know, I can't speculate for all pilots, but many of us, you know, <laughs> we get into aviation because we love flying. You know, there, there are aspects of the job that aren't perfect. It's, it's still a job at the end of the day, but we got into flying because we love it. And the thought of our medical certificate getting stripped away from us is, is terrifying. You know, we, we don't want that to happen. We don't, we don't want to wish upon that uh, for any of our fellow pilots. Uh, and, and so in this situation, it's just really unfortunate that this individual wasn't able to seek help that he clearly needed. Uh, and it's, it's also disturbing, too, that, uh, again, it, it sounds like he's had uh, trouble with mental health, but then he also admitted to being on some sort of psychedelics, too, which is obviously very illegal. Um, when, you're, when you're jump seating, you're, you're, you're not on duty, per se, uh, but you have to treat it as such, meaning, you know... Um, the airline that you're flying on, you have to ad adhere to their rules. So most airlines have a, a 12 hours prior for drinking alcohol and, and of course, no illegal drugs at all because you, you have to treat it as if you're, you're flying the aircraft in terms of uh, you know, your ability to sit up front. You, you can't have anyone up front at the controls uh, who's, who's under the influence of anything. So it, that's also really disturbing that he took some psychedelics, I guess, uh, and that in combination with, uh, what was it, the, the lack of sleep, hadn't slept in 40 hours, admitting to depression, hadn't slept in 40 hours, taking psychedelics, he clearly wasn't thinking straight. What's really interesting is that the, you know, the two pilots who granted him, well, specifically the captain who granted him access to the flight deck for, for the jump seat and, and the, uh, the first officer as well, it, it sounds like their recounts don't indicate any, anything wrong with this individual when uh, they first boarded. You know, nothing happened until they were partway on the flight. Uh, it, was, it was totally normal. It was just uh, casual conversation, as, as they said in the report. So that's, that's really interesting that all of a sudden, mid-flight, that's when, when everything went wrong for this individual and they, they, they lost it, essentially. They, they truly lost it. So, I mean, the, again, coming back around to how unfortunate it is that when someone like this individual needs help, they, they're not going to seek the help they need because their career would go down the drain, at least the, the career as, as a line pilot. So to the FAA and, and to our government, I, I really hope that change can happen. Like I said, pilots are human too, and, and sometimes we need help. Life is never easy or perfect. Uh, it's certainly not like the Instagram influencers make it seem. There's, there's many challenges to life, and sometimes we need to work through those challenges, and that's perfectly fine. That's perfectly human. Uh, but there's just no, no room for that help. That uh, you know, people, Pilots can't get the, need, the, the help that they need because of that, that fear of losing their medical. So 
I just hope that, that an incident like this will have them thinking about mental health resources and not just eliminating uh, a necessary privilege that allows pilots to live out of base and, and allows us to, to access the jump seat and get from point A to point B to grab that extra seat that normally we would not uh, be able to go on that flight. So I, I just really hope that this is an opportunity for the FAA uh, to, to take a, another look at mental health because it goes way above and beyond just aviation as well. Uh, mental health is, is certainly a, a very important topic of discussion and it's it's a thing that many people tend to keep reserved about because it, it can be embarrassing for many people to to admit that yeah i need help you know i i've got problems i need help you know that that's a very hard thing for people to do so i, I just really hope that this is an, uh, an again an opportunity for the faa to make some changes because we 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 don't want any more individuals uh like the the one in this incident uh to come about because what if those red handles did get fully pulled and that plane did turn into a glider? It, you just can't, you just can't spec. I mean, it's, it's hard to, to even think about what would happen in that situation. That's something we never want to think about. And again, like I said, I, I've jump seated many times. I've had many jump seaters on my flight. I, I thought like that just never has never crossed my mind. So it's, it's pretty shocking. This is a uh, pretty shocking news. And, and yeah, Certainly a, a darker topic than my usual content, but I think it's necessary to talk about. Aviation is, is not necessarily all uh, butterflies and sparkles. You know, there, there are parts of it that require some deeper thought. Uh, but anyway, I think that's enough for, for this episode getting, getting too dark. <laughs> Back to me, so to speak. Um, this past week only had, uh, it was just a quick two-day trip when I got pulled off a reserve, and absolutely nothing out of the ordinary happened. Um, maybe the only unordinary thing was that there were some some low ceilings and a, a very low pressure system, but because of that, uh, one would think that there would be some delays getting in and out of, especially the Northeast, but there wasn't a single delay for me in and around uh, all the airports that I operate. I think it was mostly just DC, New York, and uh, Boston for me. Uh, and I think I did uh, Raleigh as well. Yeah, that's right, I did Raleigh. But no delays whatsoever, which is just unheard of, I mean, <laughs> given the weather. I mean, you, the, the running joke is you throw a cloud in New York's airspace, and you'll just receive a basket of delays. And that's typically how it happens. But not for me. I mean, I guess I was just, I was really lucky. But what I did think about that was, was also really interesting is that things um, can get very interesting when you have a strong tailwind. And you also have icing conditions. You know, you're in and out of the clouds. It's it's pretty cold temperature, so your your um, ice is is building up on the aircraft. So because of that, there's some changes um, where the the bleed systems will will divert some more air to the anti ice systems, and so you'll get a change in in thrust settings. And then on top of that, maybe you're told to fly really fast. So then all of a sudden you have a tailwind, you're told to fly fast, you, you're entering an icing condition, and this means that descending becomes very tricky. So I think in the next episode, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about how we manage our descents towards the destination. It's, it's really interesting stuff, and I think it'll make a really great topic to explore. And, and again, like I said, this past week was not too, uh, nothing too crazy happened. So I, I think I'm going to dive into this descent planning. Uh, I'll bring back a couple elements from uh, this two-day trip 
to, to kind of help describe it and compare it to some other trips as well. And then maybe between now and, and then, uh, maybe I'll, I'll get called off a reserve for another time to, to also think about it. Because now as we head into the cold front season, particularly on the arrival into Boston, where we're flying from west to east, the prevailing winds is also west to east. And so you commonly will get a pretty strong tailwind, which makes descending very difficult for meeting altitude and especially uh, speed restrictions on the arrival. So that'll be a really fun thing to talk about on the next episode. So there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next time. And until then, as always, fly safe. <laughs>